Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. My name is David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. My name is Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find more of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. That is acastofkings at gmail.com. Before we begin today, uh, we want to make a few announcements. First of all, uh, if, if you're just tuning in for the first time and you don't know what is going on here, we will spoil everything through this week's episode of Game of Thrones. And that includes everything through Season 3, Episode 7, The Bear and the Maiden Fair. We will not spoil anything from future episodes. And that includes anything from future books, future plot developments from books that hasn't taken place in the show yet, and anything in the next time on preview that they show on HBO. I cannot emphasize... The no-spoiler thing enough. Because a couple of things this week, Joanna, have have brought this spoiler fireball barreling into my life yet again. First of all, several people have inconsiderately ruined the Theon storyline for me uh, and told me what it is that is going on with Theon. Now, to be fair, uh, you know, there, there is enough stuff going on in the show that you could theoretically figure it out, but... Uh, as you put it, Joanna, it's only really obvious if you're looking for it. If you know what to look for, yes. it's there. But if you don't, I think it's unfair people to be like, it's really obvious. Because most people who wrote in and said it's really obvious, because we got so many emails from people saying it's really obvious. Most people wrote in or like, my friend who read the book told me to pay attention to this line in this episode or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, someone guided you there then. But all on your own, I'm not sure it's obvious. And if you figured it out all on your own, Kudos to you. That's awesome. You are, you are so smart. You're, you're exceptional. So smart. But Except- I, don't, I, I don't think it's obvious if you haven't read the books. You're like, you know, Ben Affleck from Paycheck okay. or, or uh, Bradley Cooper from Limitless. Like, that is how smart you are. Uh, but yeah, Dave got, despite my best efforts, Dave got spoiled this week. Uh, I guess. But I don't and, think, and I mean, honestly. Say, let me just say, I, I'm not going to say what the spoiler is, obviously. But I was not impressed, Joanna. No, I know. Exactly. I was not impressed. It's, what I said today to someone is that it's the stupidest, most boring spoiler that I'm guarding with my life, basically. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I appreciate like, that. Like, I'm trying really hard to protect people from it on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm like, they're going to not give a shit when it's revealed. So, I don't know. Yeah. So, who knows why the show is doing what it's doing, but I'm sure when, well, let's, yeah. in, in, in the showrunners we trust in this case. Uh, but, yes, yeah, several people very inconsiderately spoiled me uh, and... You know, via Facebook private message and other fa- other forms of inconsiderate spoiling, and uh, I was really unhappy. So, you know, if you if you have book knowledge, guys, uh, tr- try to keep it to yourself. Or even if you have non book knowledge, just keep it to yourself. Uh, and, and it's fine. It, like, all, let me be clear: all the people that emailed me, it's fine. Like, that's fine because I read everything before I send it to Dave. So Dave gets all these redacted emails, and that's fine. But private messaging Dave on Facebook is not very cool. So. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we got a bunch of emails with corrections uh, on a, a variety of things. Uh, one of them is that uh, Nikolai Koster Waldo is Danish, uh, but the film Headhunters is Norwegian, so I was right about that. But he is Danish, uh, so apologies for, for getting his nationality incorrect. That probably constituted about 50 emails this week saying that he's Danish. So, uh, you know. People really, there's a lot of Danish pride going on, and I, I'm which is kind of cool. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. That's fine, and apologies for the mistake. Um, 
What else? Uh, just want to reiterate that, as usual, your emails to acastofkings at gmail.com will never be read on the air if they contain spoilers. So uh, I, I think it is beneficial for everyone, including Joanna, myself, and you guys, if the emails don't contain spoilers, because then we can all read them. And, uh, you know, like, uh, they might be read on the air. Everyone can enjoy them. Joanna doesn't need to spend hours and hours redacting them before sending them to me. So uh, that's optimal, but of course... Uh, I'm never going to take away the option for you to read people's emails, Jonna, because that would be cruel. So, and finally, <laughs> finally, uh, what else? Uh, a lot of people wrote in, really uh, did not appreciate our denigration of the uh, the climb monologue that Lord Baelish had at the end of last episode. Um, this email comes in from Mustafa from Ghana. Uh, I never wrote in before, but I'm making an exception because I completely disagree with your assessment of Lord Baelish's monologue at the end of the episode. Even more than that, I disagree with your assessment of the episode as weak because it is Littlefinger's monologue that made this a great episode. This monologue provides an important reflection on the nature of legitimacy, nationhood, and myth-building. But above all, it establishes that Lord Baelish like Danny Targaryen, like Stannis Baratheon, and like the Lannisters, is an actual player in this Game of Thrones, the game he kept referring to as the ladder and the climb. In my opinion, this is an important character scene because it puts Baelish on a completely different playing field than Lord Varys, a scheming but ultimately timid and unambitious preserver of the status quo. I consider myself an average guy, I have a university degree, and I'm fairly well-read. But I don't have a degree in liberal, art, liberal arts, David, and I'm not a voracious reader, Joanna. So this is perhaps why I find your complete dismissal of this crowd pleaser as an unconscious act of intellectual elitism. So uh, according to Mustafa, we are intellectual elitists, Joanna Robinson. Uh, thoughts on this? What, what are your thoughts? Um, well, to me, my main concern is I think a lot of people thought I didn't understand the climb speech and I, I don't think that's accurate. I feel like I understood it and I actually felt like it was too obvious to um, just hitting you over the head with this the, the metaphor that they were trying to use there. And I think that Game of Thrones can be more sophisticated than that. Um, so on the contrary, I think a lot of people were like, well, you should read more into it. And I was like, I think I read all the I way into it. we get it. And, and, and no, to, be I mean, fair, to be fair, we, we sarcastically joked about the uh, the monologue being incomprehensible. Uh, but in fact, I think we were just talking about how sort of clunky it was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like and that, that was, I mean, that was my impression of it. Exactly. Um, are we being intellectual elitists? Possibly in this circumstance that, that could be true. I mean, I think this entire podcast is an, is an exercise in intellectual elitism, or at least at the very least an attempted exercise at intellectual elitism. So, uh, so you, you nailed it right on the head, Mustafa. Thank you for that. In any case, uh, yeah, the climb, I, I, I don't begrudge you if you like that monologue. And actually, you know, Joanna, I actually went back and revisited season three, episode six. And uh, I do think we are a bit hard on it. I do think that, uh, I, I, me in particular, uh, I did not see the virtues of that episode uh, as much the, the, the first time when I saw it. And the second time around, I was able to appreciate things like the climb and and uh, and so on and so forth. So, the other thing, the other correction that people wanted to make is, I think we spent a lot of time talking about how the death of Roz really highlighted Joffrey's uh, shittiness, but that the emphasis was really more on Baelish's um, 
villainy because of the way he used Roz as just sort of a piece in his game. And I, I think that's a good criticism that we didn't really address that, even though like it's not that that missed my, you know, it's not like I didn't observe that. But I, I agree that that was more of the intention to show Baelish's cruelty and not Joffrey's. So, Yeah, and how he just completely discards her after she has outlived her usefulness. Right. Like, like, I mean, I think, to be fair, though, Joanna, I think that kind of would have made more of an impact if him deciding to bring her into his fold uh, was not just totally glossed over in the show. Do you know what I mean? Like, if there was a scene where Baelish is like, hey, you've been doing all this work for me, and now I'd like to promote you. Instead of out of nowhere, she's just taking care of his affairs now. Do you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I do. Then, then you might actually have some attachment. And then when Baelish ends up finally betraying her, then you'd understand, oh, okay, that's now actually meaningful because Baelish was kind of like bringing her, you know, bringing her up and training her, and, and now she's gone. Um, but th- there was never that, that. That's kind of the thing. That's one of the I- issues with uh, Game of Thrones in the last couple seasons, or this season and last season, is that it kind of tries to pay off these things without really building them up, I find. Um, well, we'll but on the flip side of that, another <laughs> another criticism we got last week was wanting to um, eat our cake and have it too, which is that we complained about how um, Egret and John's relationship felt rushed, but then we also complained about the the brand scenes and how it's just sort of relationship building. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like sometimes when they have those relationship building scenes, we can be like, nothing happened here. I don't know why this was here. And then later we're like, why didn't we have those relationship building scenes? So I I can see that there's an inherent hypocrisy occasionally in that criticism. Does that make sense? I I don't agree. Okay. That we are are being hypocrites. (laughs) I mean, I think, I think even if you, okay, so I'll, I'll acknowledge that that is possible, but I'll also say that, uh, in a situation like the Jon Snow storyline, we have spent so much screen time with that character. Do you know what I mean? Uh, compared to Bran. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so much uh, character development has taken place with him that when something doesn't happen, uh, when there's something that's not developed and not built up, it feels more jarring uh, than when you have something with Bran, who, who like... You know, I could probably summarize in three sentences everything that's happened to him in the last two seasons. You know, well, that's not that's pretty far. That's pretty harsh. Certainly this season. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just saying. I, I think it's more complicated than just we are never happy. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, absolutely, of course. But I, but I do think that that it might be that some of the things that we complain about is nothing happening might add weight to something that happens further down the road. Perhaps. I'm not saying that's true of Bran, but it, it might be true of other other things. Perhaps, but then you have uh, plot lines like uh, the Brienne and Jamie storyline in this season, which I feel like has been to- has been like pitch perfect throughout. Do you know what I mean? Pitch perfect. Like there, it's it's just the right amount of character development between these two characters. Um, ditto this Theon storyline from season two. Right, totally perfect. Like I would not alter it at all. Um, so you, and you know, know why? Why is that? Because it's exactly like it is in the books. Oh, uh, uh, anyway, so you know what I mean. So there are certain um, characters that when the show the show does really well, and then when it doesn't do other characters well, uh, that uh, those missteps become really apparent. Uh, and so that's that's my that's my argument there for okay. for why we're not we're not just arbitrary and capricious. Uh, TV critics. So, no. 
All right, let's dive into this episode, season three, episode seven, "The Bear and the Maiden Fair." Uh, I think we've been going on for like we've been going on for like twelve minutes without actually getting to the episode. So let's let's do this thing, Joanna. Let's do it. All right. So uh, the episode begins with uh, the Jon Snow storyline. We had just seen them ascend the wall last episode, and uh, now they are south of the wall. Things seem to be going. Um, you know, like the weather is much nicer here, and they are about a week's walk from Castle Black. Now, what do you make of, of this storyline, Joanna? Because there's, there's kind of a lot of interesting interactions that happen here. Uh, there is this interaction between John and Orel, uh, who's the guy that cut the rope last episode. There's uh, the interaction between Orel and Egret, and then finally John and Egret, right? These, these three interactions kind of make up this plot line for this episode. Uh, except for that other gentleman who is describing how to have sex with a woman. Torment. Uh, that's right. So, uh, so what did you think? Like, how did you think the aftermath of the rope cutting was dealt with here? I, I, well, I thought it was very odd. Like, I didn't mind the conversation between Orel and John. I thought that made sense. But the conversation between Orel and Ingrid where he's like, I wish you were my woman. I was like, didn't you just try to cut her off the wall last week like did, did you suppress that episode as well Aurel? um <laughs> that was really weird wasn't it he just tried to cut her to her death last week and this week he's like you should be my woman i that was weird writing to that me that was just his way of telling her that he loved her oh it's like pulling someone's pigtails when you're yes. younger is that what you mean yes um <laughs> cutting someone's climbing rope is the westeros equivalent of pulling someone's pigtails <laughs> or saying that they have cooties. Okay. Um, but what I will say, and and you and I discussed this off air actually, is that uh, I thought this was Kit Harrington's best acting that we've seen from him in a long time. And my new theory is that he's just been really cold for the last year and a half and hasn't, as they've been filming on location and hasn't been able to properly emote. Because I thought he was so great this episode. And, and this, is, this is the John that I've been really wanting to see, where I feel like I understand his motivations much more. And I'm not just laying, you know, glazing it over with my book knowledge. Does that make sense? Would yeah, you agree? It, 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 well, I agree that he did a great job this episode. I, I thought it was weird where he just described how Egret's people would be annihilated, and that is the thing that is her aphrodisiac. He, <laughs> I don't think that that's what was going on. Okay. I feel like she was trying to exert her ownership of him. Right. I don't think she was like, I'm so turned on by you talking about the Holocaust and my people. I think she was – he was like, you all are going to die. And then she's like, no, we're going to die. Yeah. No, and I get that. She, she says like, it's not you. It's we. It's us. And yeah. she, she says, I am yours. You are mine. That's kind of the Westeros uh, marriage – equivalent of marriage vows, correct? Um, no. Okay. I, th- I don't I, think so. I thought, I, well, it's the same thing that Tyrion said to Shay. And I didn't. Oh. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. Like, <laughs> you feel like this is the Westeros version of I do? Uh, well, I also, well, so first of all, it's the same thing that Tyrion says to Shay, and then Shay says to Tyrion, like, last season. And then all, I, didn't, I didn't know if I remembered it from, like, the Robin to Lisa plotline. Hmm. So. May, I, I might just be misremembering. But in any case, it's, it's the thing that people say in Westeros is my sense of when you're really committed to someone. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, she says that. And uh, what, what is the impression you get when she says that? Do you feel like 
she's just really madly in love, or do you f- do you feel like you're getting the kind of a, you know, a fatal attraction? So, thing yeah, is, fatal is attraction of, thing going on. <laughs> one of our listeners wrote that in about how Egret is like like John should hide all his pet rabbits because Egret is like a typical right. scary. Spend one day girlfriend. in a cave, and all of a sudden we're <laughs> living together, we're dying together, type of thing. Uh, you know, I just think. Well, I think that's what Orel was getting at in terms of the harshness and the speed of their life. And, you know, and then she ends it with like, but first we're going to live. And he goes, yeah, we're going to live, you know? So I just think that she, she's, I do think she's in love with him. And I think that she's trying to connect with, she's trying to bring him into the fold in a way that he is not, he's not quite willing to be yet, you know? Yeah. So uh, o- overall, I, I, I don't know. I don't feel like that was very articulate. But what I will say is that I really bought the chemistry between them, and I loved their interaction. Um, the RL stuff was a little odd, and it's sort of shoehorned in. I don't know if they feel like we need a villain here or something like that. But I really like the interaction between the two of them and their whole cute thing about the silk dress and the windmill and her teasing him. I just thought it was really sweet and really cute. So yeah. Yeah, I thought it was nice, and yeah, the windmill conversation was quite funny. And hearing the word, the you know, the c- terms and concepts that she didn't understand was also quite amusing. So, uh, so yeah, did he really not have a term for fainting north of the wall? Like, <laughs> do, do people never get like I don't know, wild, hungry? Wild and things, <laughs> wild things don't get lightheaded. So. Okay, all right. All right, so then uh, we have this uh, scene with uh, the Rob and Talisa, and uh, basically the only thing that really happens in the storyline is that we see Talisa's butt, and she tells him that she's pregnant, right? Those are the main plot developments this episode? I guess so. <laughs> yeah. So my question is, do you care about this pregnancy? You know, it's problematic, and I can't really talk about it. <laughs> But it's a, it's a, it's sort of a big deal, but I can't talk about it. Okay, don't, okay, don't say anything else. That's it. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, um, so, so let's talk about your impressions, since I can't talk too much about it. Like, what, how did you feel about this scene? Did you enjoy the view of everyone's butts? Um, oh, we got to see. I'm sorry, we got to see Rob's, Rob's butt as well. I, oh yeah, I, it was double butts. Me- I forgot to mention. We got to see a bunch of butts this episode, actually. So yeah. Uh, so did I enjoy it? Did I enjoy seeing these people's butts? As I could take it or leave it. Um, what about the dynamic between the two of them? And like, do you feel, I mean, we've talked about relationships and paying off and stuff like that. Do you feel like they've built this relationship up? Yeah. Yeah. I think as a relationship, I think an on-screen relationship, I think is totally fine. Do you know what I mean? I don't think, oh, this is totally unearned or anything like that. The problem is I just, I really have a problem giving a crap about it. You know, like I just don't really care that much. Um, and I don't know why, Joanna. You know, I feel like this must be what sociopaths feel. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think I'm supposed to feel something here, but I don't. Um, and yeah, I just I just don't care. I, th- I think I mean, like part of it is, uh, you know, I was rewatching last last episode and there was this nice moment between Edmure and Rob that we didn't point out last week where uh Edmure says like uh or Rob says to Edmure you're paying for my sins uncle yeah. you know it's not right and it's not right you know what I mean and and I'll remember it and I thought that was kind of nice that was kind of a mature moment of Rob acknowledging that he was kind of a he's kind of a jerk uh he made decisions with his dick 
that imperiled the entire army. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, and he, he's kind of coming to terms with it. So for me, Talisa represents Rob's immaturity. Sure. You know, and, and his inability to make good strategic moves. Instead, he's following his heart. And usually in another movie, when we're watching this, we're like, yeah, follow your heart. But in this case, we, we are so meant to identify and root for Ned Stark's quote-unquote side that uh, I just feel like, hey, this is the guy who's imperiling Ned Stark's legacy because he wanted to marry this, this hot nurse. The thing yeah. I feel like I'm allowed to say in a non-spoilery way is that the difference in the books is that Rob, he, you know, I've mentioned this before, but he basically deflowers this woman in a state of grief because he's found out that his brothers are dead. He gets upset, he deflowers her, and he marries her out of honor. And so it's it's not a love match. It's he took her virginity and he married her out of duty. Except that it's like duty versus duty. You know what I mean? It's like he, he was sworn – he had an oath to the phrase and he had a, had duty as a king of the north to do something, to follow through on his promise. And instead he, he chose to honor this other question of being an honorable person and, and making an honest woman of her and not dishonoring her household. So, you know, I think it's, it's less of a blatantly bad decision in the book. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I also understand why they didn't maintain that for the show. Because I think that would be something that people could relate to even less. I have a lot of questions about the choices they've made for the show, and I'm really interested to see how it plays out over the next couple episodes. Uh, Yeah, so we'll see what happens. That's my vague comment on that. You point out in your uh, show doc that she's writing in Valyrian to her mother. Yeah. Um, So... I don't know if that's going to come into play later, but we should point it out that that is the case. So, well, no, I just thought it was cool because we haven't seen – the reason I wrote it in the show notes is we haven't seen it written before. And it almost looked like the, you know, like a Lord of the Rings language. Like it was just a beautiful sort of font that they created for the Valyrian um, for that scene. Cool. All right. So then we had a scene in King's Landing uh, and between Sansa and Marjorie, and Sansa's kind of dealing with – the fact that she's going to have to marry Tyrion and kind of thinking through what her future is going to be with them, uh, with Tyrion and, and whether she's going to have children. And Sansa is so uh, naive. Is that the term, right? That, that little dialogue uh, at the end that they had there where she's like, did your mom tell you all these things? Marjorie's yes, like, sweet girl. Yes, my mom told <laughs> my me. My mom. <laughs> Uh, so actually, you, you know, Jonah, you were talking about um, scenes in the show that like are about relationship building as opposed to stuff's happening. And th- I think this is actually a really good example of one of those scenes, right? I completely agree, where it's something that we enjoy. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The, the, no plot really is being moved along here. But you you watch this dialogue between these two characters. It's totally enjoyable. I have no beef with that. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but then you have like plot lines like the... Bran and Jojen Reed storyline, which I just I feel like is moving at such a glacial pace, uh, and I don't know. It, it's hard to really keep interest in it. Do you know? I know some. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know some people objected to that Sansa scene because they felt like it was her being too 
hard on Tyrion and that Sansa is not, you know, that much of a jerk. You know, that, that it was her being superficial. But I just felt like it was pretty true to what it, how a teenager would react. And yeah. she wasn't being a jerk about it. And I really liked the interaction between Marjorie and, and Sansa. And there was a bit of fan service there, too, I think, because there was an implication that, that Marjorie is, uh, might swing both ways, maybe, possibly. Mm. And uh, I don't know. I think that's some peop- something that is a popular theory among book readers, that, that Marjorie has a little crush on Sansa. So. Well, it's interesting also because I think this scene pays off uh, a lot of the character work that was done between Tyrion and Sansa in the first two seasons, right? Yeah. Because like, I always like their little interactions with each other. And you kind of see that, yeah, on the one hand, uh, she, he's not an ideal suitor for Sansa. But on the other hand, she knows that like he tries to be good to her or has been in the past. Um, so... But he's still like her captor and he's still the enemy of her family. Like he is the nicest of all of her jailers, basically. Right. And she has to marry him. So, yep. But I did like that, you know, Marjorie was like, he's pretty handsome because you know what? Peter Dinklage is pretty handsome. So it was good. She's like, especially with that scar. So I don't know. That was pretty cute. So then uh, Bronn and Tyrion discuss uh, the the possibilities of – because he's not happy with the situation either. None of the people – uh, are happy with the situation, as Tyrion pointed out in last week's episode. Uh, none of the four between Cersei, Sir Loras, Sansa, and Tyrion. Um, and yeah, uh, so they they kind of have this scene about w- what is what is going to happen. And Bronn suggests, "Hey, you could just um, you could just marry one and still kind of do whatever you want to do." Uh, and this kind of continues in a conversation that Tyrion has with Shay later on in the episode. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on this plotline, Joanna? Are you, do, do you see this clash coming between Shay and, the, uh, and, and Tyrion's betrothal to Sansa? Do, are yes. you anticipating it? With, <laughs> well, I mean, they, 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 laid it, they laid it out in that scene where she, uh, earlier in the season, where she was accusing him of being attracted to Sansa when he said she was pretty or something like that. And Shay just flew off the handle. So I think they laid that track pretty early on. Um, but I also thought that that scene with Braun was meant to show that Tyrion is attracted to Sansa because, because he accuses know, her of being attracted and he's kind of like, he, he behaves as one would if one was actually attracted to her. Right, which, you know, that actress is – Sophie Turner is quite beautiful, you know, and so it's like – just to, to make it clear that it's not that Tyrion is repulsed by the idea of marrying Sansa, but she's he's trying to be honorable. She's quite young, and he is in love with Shay. So, you know, it's it's conflicting for him. Yeah. But then there's this whole question of like, you know, Shay's like, why are you even doing this? And he says, I'm nothing without my name. You know, I'm just like, I might as well be a juggler. Like his name is so important to him because it's the last season when he was the hand that was really the most power he's ever enjoyed in his life. And he loved that power that he got from that. And so it's it's not he's not a wholly altruistic character. I think a lot of people think of Tyrion as this complete hero. But it's true that the reason why he hasn't left run off with Shay from King's Landing is because he liked being in control. You know, so I think that that's an important thing that comes across in her scene with him. And I also think that she was more sympathetic than she's been in the past because I'm on record as not liking Shay. I don't really like the actress's portrayal, but I, I don't think she's outside 
the realm of believability in being as upset sh- as she is because she is just a whore to him. You know what I mean? She can't – when he says you're my lady and she's so upset, she's like, I'm not your lady. And she can never be because of her station, you know? Yeah. Uh, good points. You're, you're making me appreciate the Shea storyline a little bit more. Uh, I mean, it's, it's still not great. But, <laughs> but I think, you know, it's not as bad as it might be. So Yeah, a little bit more, I said. Not, not that much. <laughs> yeah, okay. Slightly. Uh, and let's, before we uh, go to a break, let's talk about this scene between Tywin and Joffrey. So there's this uh, wonderful, like, uh, camera motion where it looks like a, a either steady cam or handheld where they're walking in to the throne room and i think like this entire scene is just really amazing for a variety of reasons right there's this uh there's all this stuff that's unsaid uh a lot of stuff uh, on tywin's face that you just kind of you you can intuit right mm-hmm. like it, was it just me or did he kind of give this look to the the torches on the side, like the pillars, and he kind of there's kind of this look of disgust at the ostentatiousness of it. Oh, was that, was that, I might have been imagining that, but I thought no, it could be. when he walked into the throne room and he like looked because because uh, Joffrey had those things like outfitted in there, correct? Oh, it's true. He interior decorated the court, the uh, the That's throne room. He's like this needs to be fit for a king. Let's have this thing <laughs> burning all the time. Let us and, pimp this out. Yeah. And Tywin probably stared over it and was like, "Oh my gosh, this kid." What is he doing? So nouveau riche. Ugh, yeah, can't seriously. Even. He's like Gatsby. He's totes Gatsby. Uh, so they have this conversation and it is, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing for what is said, but what is unsaid. Curiosities on the far side of the world are no threat to us. But how do we know these dragons are just curiosities and not the beasts that brought the whole world to heal? Because we have been told as much by the many experts who serve the realm by counselling the king on matters about which he knows nothing. But I haven't been counselled. You are being counselled at this very moment. Tywin, during the course of the conversation, does the unthinkable and steps up onto the same platform as the throne, which I don't think we've ever seen happen, uh, except maybe with Cersei earlier on uh, in last season. Uh, and so, yeah, what, what, what did you make of this? Did you love the scene of dialogue as much as me, Joanna? That was a total power move. Absolutely. And the two things that we should mention in this scene, first of all, we haven't talked about who wrote this episode, which is George R. R. Martin, of course. Um, and so we should also big... say it's directed by Michelle McLaren, who is a veteran. That was my point number two. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Point number two, it's Michelle McLaren, who is a Breaking Bad director that we love. And, um, yeah, and so for the first time, I think, Someone pointed this out to me. For the first time, we're talking about camera angles in Game of Thrones. I don't think that that's something we talk about a lot. And it was used so beautifully in this scene, that looming shot in the overhead where you just really see Tywin looming over Joffrey. It was it was fantastic. She she did an amazing job with this scene and with the episode in general, I thought. so. Yeah, it was, it was great. And uh, it's really just awesome to see Joffrey get put in his place. I mean, a lot of people have been wanting to see it. We rarely see it. We rarely see it. It happened in, I think, season one, episode two, when Tyrion slapped the hell out of him. Uh, but other than that, it's been a long time coming. You know, there's, uh, also, I think Cersei slapped him as well. Cersei got, did slap he's him. He's gotten slapped a lot. He's gotten yeah. slapped a lot. This time he got slapped with words. 
And it was very satisfying to see. Yeah, Taiwan's like, well, we could carry you. I yeah. mean, it was just so dripping with disdain. It was great. But, I mean, the weird part is that Joffrey's right. Yes. Right? Because he's talking weird. about the dragons. And he's like, and what if these dragons are actually the big ones? And right. Tywin's like, let's not concern ourselves with these things. Exactly. And so Joffrey was actually right, which was very odd. So, um, I don't know. It was an interesting scene. And Tywin, but, but Charles Dance was... Tywin's face is going to be so red when he finds out. If he ever finds out. Uh, so, yeah. It, just, a, just a great scene. And, uh, and you really get a sense of how powerless Joffrey feels in, in, um, in Tywin's presence. I mean... My head, it does kind of do the sort of – my mind does the wandering of, well, could Joffrey get Tywin killed? Do you know? Like if, if Tywin was disrespectful enough, like what would happen? But Joffrey is just in so much fear of him that that, does, that doesn't even feel like it's an option in this universe. You know? I'm, I'm guessing you're being quiet because you don't want to say anything, so that's cool. <laughs> I'm cool with that, Joanna. Okay. All right, cool. So, uh, so let's uh, let's take a break, Joanna, and let us thank all the people that made this podcast possible this week. Uh, we launched a cast of kings using Kickstarter, and as a result, we had a, a bunch of people who sponsored uh, each episode, um, one person per episode. And this week, our sponsor is Adam Borden. Adam, like the guy in the Bible, Borden, like that girl who allegedly killed her family with an axe. Uh, so Adam Borden is a artist slash designer, and uh, he does all, all kinds of cool stuff. You can find his portfolio at portfolioadamb.blogspot.com. That's portfolioadamb.blogspot.com. Uh, now, General Robinson, do you, you actually know this person in real life? I do know this person in real life. Adam went to high school with a bunch of my friends. Well, Adam is a friend of mine. Thanks, Adam. Was he cool when he was in high school? Adam was the coolest. Adam also sent me this really cool Mondo Game of Thrones poster this week. So he's basically just making it rain in my life. He's the best. I think I saw that on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. That looked really cool. Uh, Well, not only is Adam cool and generous, but he's also apparently quite talented. If you go to his portfolio at portfolioadamb.blogspot.com. You'll find a lot of his work. Uh, and I encourage it because we are always, uh, you know, people in general are always on the lookout for good designers. Uh, and what better way to find out if you're, you know, if this guy's something, someone whose skills you're looking for than by going to portfolioadamb.blogspot.com. Adam was also so nice that he said, uh, rather than promote his portfolio, we should instead promote uh, Child's Play, which is a really cool charity uh, that does cool work with, uh, with children in hospitals. Um, so you can find that at childsplaycharity.org. That's childsplaycharity.org. So see, we are, we are pushing both of those things this episode. Uh, so uh, hopefully Adam gets some good karma coming his way. So again, that's Adam at portfolioadamb.blogspot.com. You can also check out the really cool work that Child's Play does at childsplaycharity.org. Uh, we also had a bunch of people that made uh, some smaller but equally important donations uh, to keeping the show alive. We want to thank those people right now and butcher their names as we usually do. Uh, thanks to June St. James, Nate Boudreau, Oscar Roena, Will Halley, Ray Subers, 
Eric S., Rex Lorenzo, Rich Cadieu, and Alan Tam. Rich, Rich wrote Cadieu, but I'm pretty sure the correct French pronunciation is Cadieu. So that's a time where I actually uh, know how to pronounce it, someone's last name. I, better I than pronounce they do. it better than they know how to pronounce uh-huh. it. So. Cadieu. I like that. Um, we also want to thank Amanda Hopek, Jonathan F., Allison Burt and Graham Caulfield, Mark Cole, Lisa Skelly, Raymond Terry, Dustin Anglin. Is that right? Do you think? Uh, it could be Anglin. Anglin. Is it Angli or Angli? That's the question. That's the thing. Like you guys <laughs> see people put like it sounds like this and they don't expl- and they use like ambiguous things. Anyway, um, Dustin Anglin or Anglin, thank you very much either way. Um, Garvin Hicking, Sophie Hamilton, and Jamil Payne. So I only butchered three or four of those yeah, this week. No, nicely done. Nicely done. Well, thank you guys for donating to A Cast of Kings and uh, making this podcast possible. We really appreciate it. And I uh, hope you guys are enjoying our lively banter about this week's episode of Game of Thrones. So, Joanna, let's dive right back into the episode. This thing, things were just getting good when we, when we wrapped up and went to break just now. Uh, so we finally got to see Yunkai, which is this this whole thing the show is doing this season of like showing places that we're not going uh, that episode, you know, or showing places that we don't get to until later. A little bit confusing, I think. But we finally see Yunkai this episode. Well, I think I think what they're trying to do is just show you uh, they want to go across the sea every single time on the opening credits, right? And basically, Danny's like hanging out in Slaver's Bay in general. So they're like, "Well, she's close to Yunkai, so let's use Yunkai as the as the that'll be the, the proxy." Be yeah, proxy. yeah, exactly. So then, probably, uh, if not the highlight of the episode, then the second biggest highlight of the episode, which is this scene of dialogue between Daenerys and the Yunkai or Yunkish diplomat. Uh, where Daenerys throws down and says, like, okay, let me ask you, what did you think of this scene, Joanna? And I have some thoughts. My and Sadiq need practice. I was told to blood them early. If blood is your desire, blood shall flow. But why? It is true, you have committed savageries in Astapor, but the Yunkai are a forgiving and generous people. The wise masters of Yunkai have sent a gift for the Silver Queen. There is far more than this awaiting you on the deck of your ship. My ship? Yes, Khaleesi. As I said, we are a generous people. You shall have as many ships as you require. And what do you ask in return? All we ask is that you make use of these ships... Sail them back to Westeros where you belong and leave us to conduct our affairs in peace. I have a gift for you as well. Your life. My life. And the lives of your wise masters, but I also want something in return. You will release every slave in Yunkai. Every man, woman and child shall be given as much food, clothing and property as they can carry as payment for their years of servitude. Reject this gift, and I shall show you no mercy. I loved it. I loved it. I thought the dragons looked amazing and really, like, that's, I think, the scariest they've ever looked. Um, yeah, they look great. They're good work. Yeah, someone someone mentioned that they looked like um, 
a Dilophosaurus from uh, Jurassic Park, and yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's really good. scary. Um, and I like the guy, Razdelmo Eraz is the name of the diplomat, uh, the guy with all the guy liner on. And I thought he was great, too, and I thought the whole setup was great. Her dress was great. Her dialogue was great. I loved it. Uh, what were your thoughts? So let me say this. Let me say, <laughs> oh, let me no. say, let me say a few things. <laughs> First of all, this is an awesome scene of dialogue. So let me – nothing I say – should take away from that fact, okay? That I think this is an awesome scene, one of the best, one of Danny's best scenes. All right, let's get that out of the way. That being said, mm. uh, a couple thoughts. Number one is, here are random thoughts that came into my mind when I was watching this, this scene, is you realize that like in, in another show or movie, like it told from a different pers- perspective, Danny would be the villain, right? Because she she comes into this place and is like, "Hey guys, uh, you got you guys got to change your way of life because X Y because I feel like it, and I have these dragons and these twenty thousand people that'll do whatever I say." I mean, l- let me ask you this: How do uh, Yunkish people treat their slaves? Is that described in the book? I mean, as any, it's not as bad as Astapor. The Yunkish slaves are, they're what's called uh, bed slaves. <laughs> so they're more sex slaves than they are warriors. I see. Well, that um, actually sounds much worse now that, I, <laughs> now that I hear it. But No, no, uh, no. But the other thing I was going to say is <laughs> the way you put that, okay, then Abraham Lincoln is the villain. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, calm all down. Right. Calm all down. right. Okay. All, right. Uh, all, all I just want to remark upon, like, <laughs> I am not in any way advocating slavery. You're super pro-slave. I love, I love that I have to even say that. I'm not in any way advocating <laughs> slavery, but I feel like we are given an incomplete picture because in certain cultures, like slaves are not like brutally beaten and you know horribly tortured and uh, and serve, like you know they're they're not in a perpetual state of torment, but, but they could. Have, they're slaves. more like servants. You know what I mean? They're more like. Um, people in, in, that serve you in a household or something like that. Uh, I'm not, again. I'm you not, are. I think you're kind of defending <laughs> nice slave owners. <laughs> I'm, okay. All I'm saying, I'm not defending slavery at all. All I'm saying is we don't have the complete picture. I mean, do they have health care? Uh, what's we, what's we don't, the deal? <laughs> we don't have the complete picture, right? And uh, and I guess we're supposed to assume that in Westeros or wherever these, you know, Yunkai, that the slaves are just horribly treated all the time. In which case, good on Danny. Do you know what I mean? Good you know, on my, her. my feeling on the subject is that if you are, if you have the title of slave, <laughs> you're not being treated well. Okay. Okay. All right. No. Good. Good point. Good point, Joanna. I concede. Let's just say this: that <laughs> if Danny were a U.S. president, she would be Abraham Lincoln. Like, she is yeah. a freer of slaves. That's who she is. That's true. That's but true. she's also, but it's not completely altruistic also, because she's also gaining, you know, a military force. Uh, she, true, true. She gets to be, altru- you know, she gets to be the li- the great liberator and, you know, bolster her ranks. So I mean, I think a criticism that people, something that people brought up, something that people brought up. Mm-hmm. That I thought was interesting is that Danny is like kind of if her primary objective is to uh, is to take the Seven Kingdoms, it seems like she is doing things that might be counterproductive to that, right? Uh, that she's putting a lot at risk by going up against Yunkai. Uh, although you could argue that she's making a calculated risk, 
right? Is that, is that your argument? Uh, no, I'm just saying you're right in terms of this guy offers her ships and a lot of gold to get the fuck out of there and go to Westeros and take her throne. He's like, go do that. And you could say that, okay, if Danny, you know, takes her unsullied, takes her ships, takes that gold, goes, takes the Iron Throne and then wants to come back and liberate um, all of the slave cities, that's that's another – that's maybe a smarter way to do it. But she does have an emotional agenda here, I think. That's maybe not making her – I don't know. In this instance, maybe it would have been smarter to take the the gold and the ships or maybe not. But you're right that it's a calculated risk. Is it the smartest thing that she could do or or is she you know, basically as good as Rob is at, at fighting? I don't know. What I thought was interesting was also <laughs> how he – the dude like threatened her and then got upset when his life seemed like it might be in danger. Do you know what I mean? Yes. He he threatens her like maybe we'll take you as a slave and then the dragons start like flipping out and he's like wait you promised me safe passage and it's like well dude you kind of threatened her do you know what I mean like she came out with guns blazing when she said hey you you must do this or else we will kill you uh, but then the dude came back well I guess that's the thing she kind of provoked him too didn't she. <laughs> The bottom line is, the point of that scene is that her dragons are really freaking scary. They're yes. getting bigger every day, and that little display they put on was very scary. Yes, well, when she, th- when she throws the meat yeah, in front of him. exactly. Very cool. Yeah. And, I, and I love the line that she says when she uh, – that's in the trailer when she says, like, uh, you will, like I will show you no mercy, basically. You yeah. really get – there's this sort of total cold calculation behind that, that line reading um, that – Kind of cements the transformation that Danny's made from, you know, innocent girl in season one, episode one, all the way to now. Uh, I need and- to rewatch that scene and look at Barristan and Jorah's faces to see if they're like, yeah, or if they're like, ooh. Yeah, you know? they probably want to stay out of her way. I like their reaction shots, the Jorah and Barristan reaction shots. So, Anyway, very cool scene. Uh, so... We'll see what happens with Yunkai, uh, but I'm guessing what they're trying to foreshadow is uh, when the guy says he has lots of friends, and she says to Jorah, hey, find out what the hell he's talking about. Who knows what, what's going to come of that, but uh, I'm guessing that's probably going to be the next step in that plot line. Uh, I have, and I should mention, I have no concept of the wor- like what the relationship of Yunkai is to other worlds, so I don't even think I could begin to predict what that is. Uh, Right? Am I right, Joanna, or am I missing all the clues? No, no, no. You're yeah. fine. Okay. I mean, basically, they're on what's called Slaver's Bay. Right. So she's sort of slave city hopping right now. They're like big trade. Anyway, go ahead. There's this amazing scene with uh, Melisandre and Gendry coming to King's Landing. Amazing. And, Tell me why you think it's amazing. Well, because it was shot like it was shot from overhead, and you see the remnants of ships from Blackwater. Uh, and I thought that was just a really impressive shot. Very beautiful. And even though I'm pretty sure most of it was CGI, it, it was very convincing. So, uh, okay. And she's saying, she, she points out again, oh, I, I should have been here. I could have prevented this. Uh, and has this kind of really bizarre dialogue with Gendry, I thought. So one of our listeners astutely pointed out that uh, Ian from, from Atlanta, Georgia points out, I'm trying my best to give this whole Gendry and Melisandre thing a chance. I was particularly bothered with a bit of their dialogue in The Bear and the Maiden Fair. At one point when Melisandre is trying to spell out Gendry's parentage for him, she says something to the effect of, 
Where did you think you got your strength and skill at fighting? I'm paraphrasing, but my question is, when have we ever seen Genji yeah. fight? And if we did, and I'm forgetting, uh, perhaps when the crew bound from the wall was attacked, I don't remember him being noticeably better at fighting. This just felt like a really lazy piece of writing where the show was telling us something of significance that we never seen. So what do you think of that, Jonah? I completely agree. That was a really weird... Yeah. <laughs> where did you get your skill of fighting? Um, what? I mean, Ari <laughs> I have, is better than he is. I'm good at And this. then <laughs> the other thing is that the, the thing that book readers are really weirdly latching onto is that they came from right around River Run and they're going to Dragonstone where Stannis is. And why are they going by King's Landing? Like it's not on the way. So a lot of people were irritated by this scene at King's Landing because it feels like they went out of their way. Like there's no reason why they would go that way. So they went out of their way on this trip so that they could use the King's Landing backdrop and you thought it was amazing so maybe you know it pays off for you but i feel like melisandre could have told him that he was robert baratheon's bastard without being like there's your father's house right there i mean she could have just told him anywhere so i don't right, know and people were pointing out how like every time they have an establishing shot like that it costs money right? exactly so why were they wasting money bringing scene. bringing gendry to king's landing when they could have right. used it on something else much cooler Right. Uh, me, on the other hand, I have no grasp of, of geography in, in Westeros, so it didn't, I, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she took the scenic route. Um, well, you know, if you wanted to spend more time with, with Gendry, and who wouldn't, because I don't know if you've seen him with his shirt off, but it's not a bad view, maybe you would take the slow boat to uh, Dragonstone as well. Um, <laughs> I also think they're doing a really good job of making Joe Dempsey, the actor, look like... Robert Baratheon like I just I felt like a lot of those tied ups on uh, close ups on his face with his blue eyes and his dark hair like he looked so much like Mark Addy who played Robert Baratheon and so you know I don't know if that's just good casting or if they're doing some good wig and contact work or whatever but I I, I liked that similarity there what I do think is kind of weird is that there um she's talking about how you have uh, you have royal blood in you right she's basically saying he he is part of the Baratheon line of people and what that implies is that there is some kind of um sort of divine provenance over uh you know who is king right that like oh that the Baratheon line is kind of blessed in some way uh that is just really bizarre to me, Joanna, because, uh, like, in, in the show, kings, like, uh, kings ascend to become kings as a result of total circumstance, right? Right. Like, they're not pharaohs. This isn't the divine right of kings or the right, king gods. Right, exactly. It's, it's like Baratheon, you know, conquered this land and, it, like, he, he cast out the Targaryens and that's why he's king, right? And Joffrey is not uh, a, a, a son of Robert Baratheon, but he was installed there uh, anyway, and that's why he's king, right? People, because people think he's uh, the, the son of the Baratheon. And so it's like, why, why is Baratheon blood blessed? Like, well, I the, think, I mean, I agree that the inference that you want to draw from that scene is that the king's blood is important, but I think more what you want to focus on is that Baratheon blood is important, and it goes back to that scene she had with Stannis at the Cove, where she's like, your fires burn low, there are others of your blood. So basically it's the connection – I think it's more the connection to Stannis that's important than the connection to Robert. Does that make sense? I guess. I mean none of it really makes that much sense. But 
Right. From that scene, she's talking about his connections to the kings and ki- there's magic in king's blood and blah, blah, blah. And in her mind, Stannis is the rightful king, you know, but I but I think she's she left looking for like isn't but that, that's the thing is like, why is he the rightful king? Like, couldn't Danny be the rightful king or queen? Do you know what I'm saying? Because like. Do you see well, what I'm then you're getting in, you're getting into a lot from Melisandre's point of view. He is chosen by the god. Right. He is chosen by her god to be the you know the the Lord of Light has chosen Stannis to be the leader. That's her belief. Um, that's not necessarily the Westerosi way of uh get, getting monarchs on the throne, but that's you know she does believe kind of in a divine right of kings. So from her perspective, yes. From our perspective, it's whoever has the biggest guns, and right now that's Danny with her dragons in theory. So you know, right? And before it was Robert with his warhammer, and you know, before that the Targaryens took the throne in the first place because before Robert it was the Targaryens, and they took the throne in the first place with dragons. So it's a conqueror's game, but in Melisandre's, from Melisandre's point of view, her god has chosen Stannis to be the king. All right. Well, I think that's as good an explanation as we're able to get now. So thank you for that. Um, let's move on. <laughs> okay. No, no I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to sound flip about it. I, I do okay. appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I'm just sounding flip no matter what I say tonight. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. So then we had um, this scene between Brienne and Jamie, And uh, where you know, this is kind of a scene where they say goodbye, where, where Brienne says, you know, that you have to go and, and do, you know, fulfill your part of the oath. Now, fulfill your vow. Did, did Jamie actually do a vow? That was the deal in letting him go. In letting him go, Kat made him promise to trade himself for Sansa and Arya. And did, did he, did, did, I mean, did we as the audience assume that he would actually do that? Or like, well, it was Tyrion's, you know, it was Tyrion's plan. So it's not really up to Jamie. Really, it was up to Tyrion. It was Tyrion's bargain that he right, struck. Right. So, um, y- you know, but- I, I guess I always just figured that they like Jamie is kind of such an underhanded figure that he would have figured out some way to subvert that whole. I mean, yeah, situation. they didn't pinky swear or yeah. you know swear on blood oath or whatever. But yeah, Brienne here is appealing to his honor. Wow, pinky swear, swear on a blood oath. Two things that he can't really do anymore. <gasps> He's got a perfectly good one, perfectly no, good yeah, pinky. <laughs> I, I Fair enough. Unlike Theon, um, well, actually, no, actually, like Theon, I should say. But um, so, and she calls him Jamie. She calls him Jamie, which is is notable because until now she has been calling him Kingslayer. Right. Right. Uh, and it is weird to hear her say it. Like you. you, you feel a difference right that these two people have been through this incredible journey together and uh there's this kind of mutual respect and uh dare i say attraction there (gasps) what (laughs) and i just and like jamie was so moved like he didn't even have anything to say he was struck speechless which is rare for jamie right but i i gotta say i knew he was gonna come back for her like, oh, did you? Yeah, oh, good. I, I, I just could see it coming. And, Feeling your uh, bones. Yeah, I could feel it. And so Kyburn, so Kyburn goes with Jamie, and then it, you know they make no. Uh, we should have said that Rob and Talisa and Edmure and Brendan and Cat are all going to the wedding, and Roose Bolton's going to the wedding too. Like we've got this, you know, movement of characters that haven't been interacting that are going 
to where the Freys are at the twins for Ed Muir's wedding. So that's something that they talked about, which, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then Jamie has that weird line where he's like, tell Rob, I don't know. Anyway, it was a weird, weird parting of the ways between all of them. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, they, they, they're out there and in the middle of nowhere. And Jamie realizes that his line about the sapphires has essentially doomed Brienne, right? That he had, he had saved her honor earlier, but he had written a check he couldn't cash, so to speak. Right. And, uh, and realized like he, he can't be responsible for her death. Uh, which is remarkable because in you know earlier he'd just be like who who gives a crap like he's willing to kill uh, somebody who really looked up to him uh, let alone someone who's theoretically his enemy so why would he like his his sort of attachment to to Brienne is so strong that he's like turn the whole turn everything around we're going back to get her um, interesting line of dialogue between Kyburn and Jamie by the way uh, where they're talking about um, Kyburn's proclivities that got him in trouble right right uh and how he he basically liked to do experiments on people and there's that trade-off where where kyburn was kind of trying to show him up right kyburn was right. trying to say hey well you know you've killed all these people and and like and i've only killed like a couple dozen right and how many have you saved unlike me uh but jamie says half a million and I think he's referring there to the fact that he uh, – that's the reason. He, he, liter- the he literally Landing. says the population of King's Landing. Right. Because otherwise that. the king would have killed them all? Right. The Mad King would have burned them all. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he says, I forgot something. And he goes back for Brienne. It should – you know, I do want to mention there's this thing in the book that they've completely excised, which are a lot of stories and a lot of dreams because they're hard to film. But Jamie has this great dream uh, when he's out with Kyburn, when Brienne's back at Harrenhal and he dreams that he's like trapped in a dungeon and he's being pursued by all these ghosts of people that he's killed or people whose deaths he's responsible for. And the only one who's fighting them off with him is Brienne. And I just love that dream and that whole scenario because it's like this is his ally against his own inner demons. Like this is who he's found. And that's why he goes back for her in the book is he tells her later, he's like, I I dreamed about you. And that's why he came back. And I just found that really touching. And I understand that it's not filmic. It's not good TV material. But I just thought it was really beautifully written. And some of that stuff that George R. R. Martin does, some of those folklore of Westeros and dreams that characters have is is taken out. Um because it's not filmable, but it's interesting, I think. Yeah. Uh, so that being said, Jonah, I do think that even in the show, it's still conveyed really well. Like the idea that you get the feeling that like this is one of the few people that really understands Jamie. You know or that mean? he's allowed himself to be open to, right. so vulnerable to. Yeah. Right. You know, you get that sense. So this plot line is just like, as I mentioned earlier this episode, like totally perfect. Right. I yes. just feel like it's great. Totally earned at the end when he goes back. A uh, l- little bit over the top with the bear, but I will say it looked fantastic. It's really hard to do CGI animals correct, and I think the show really pulled it off. That so wasn't we- a CGI animal. W- uh, well, what? <laughs> that was a real bear. <laughs> well, then. <laughs> Gwendolyn Christie had to sign like a crazy contract to get in the pit with that bear. That was wow. a real bear. That's Bart the Bear that they use in like every single stunt bear ever is the same stunt bear bart the bear interesting 
Well, I'm 99% certain that that is true. So please do send us emails if I'm wrong, but that's what I read. So, email us at castofkings at gmail.com if you know uh, what happened there. But okay, well, whatever, like, whatever it was, it was really impressive. And I was like, wow, this is some Life of Pi level uh, <laughs> CGI work going on here. Or, or, you know, maybe a combination of the two. Whatever the case, really impressive, well done. Uh, and yeah, ki- kind of... Uh, Really tense because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if Jamie's going to die. You don't know if Brienne's going to live. So uh, I, I was really, uh, I thought this was a really fitting conclusion to the episode. What'd you think? Yeah. I mean, he just jumps in there. It was great. It was very dashing. Though I, I, I was pretty, uh, it's pretty astonishing that Jamie could scale a wall basically with one hand. Yeah. But, well, that's you know, how badass he is. So. That's how badass Jamie Lannister is. So yeah, I love this plot line. It's my favorite by far. All right. Two more plot lines we got to get to, and then we're going to wrap things up for today. Uh, so one of them is uh, we mentioned this earlier, but the Jojen Reed storyline, uh, nothing really going on here. There, there was this, <laughs> there was this amazing moment in this episode when Asha turns to Hodor and is like, "What are they talking about?" And for a second, <laughs> for a second, I was like, "Is Hodor actually going to respond to her like with real words?" <laughs> no, and no. He just looks at her and he's like, Hodor. And I was like, oh, okay, that's that's awesome. It was pretty great, right? Yeah. Uh, and then Asha reveals her uh, encounter with White Walkers. And the thing is, okay, really great performance by the actress who plays Asha, right? N- not a bad scene and not, not, not like the dialogue isn't bad or anything like that. But we, we already kind of um, we already kind of knew all that. Didn't we, Joanna? Right? Like, we, we already know, we've already seen White Walkers transform people into zombies. Uh, I don't know how much it adds to this story that Asha uh, has experienced it firsthand. I don't know. I think it kind of was meant to show that it's her own personal trauma. It's not just like a problem north of the wall, but this is a very personal thing that happened to her. And my feeling was that her reaction to going north of the wall is the same as the hound's reaction to fire. Like it's deeply traumatic for her. And I think that was what we're trying to convey is that she is digging her heels and it does not want to go north of the wall. So, you know, it, I don't think it added any more to our understanding of the world building or the rules or anything like that, but to, to her own personal trauma. Yeah, de- no, definitely, definitely. Uh, I guess yeah. we just see so, like, again, I don't want to harp on it, but the, the this plot just feels like it's moving so slowly that I don't have any idea where it's going. And so I don't know yeah. how important this whole Asha experiencing White Walkers is going to be. Right. Um. Like I have no idea if they're ever going to make it to the wall or not. So you said two more, but we we I mean, but we actually have three more because we need to talk about Arya. Oh right, right. So uh, Arya takes off right because she's uh, so as predicted. I called it, Joanna. I called it. She was not going to have a a safe transition back to her family. She takes off, and then uh, the Hound, who apparently is just chilling. Like, outside the camp for this whole time, uh, steals her away uh, in, in what is a pretty horrifying moment. So, dun, dun, dun. Anything, uh, anything else I missed in that, in that description there? Well, no, the one thing that I will say in that scene is that they're talking once again about theology, as they do in that cave a lot. And, you know, she says her God is death. Which is, you know, something that people brought up in the episode last week was that parallel between Joffrey and Arya. I don't know if 
if you remember that, but the way that she was shooting this straw man full of arrows mimics the location of the arrows that were in Roz at the end of the episode. And so some people think that the show was trying to draw a comparison between the path of vengeance that Arya is on and the end res- like and that she could end up being like Joffrey if, you know, she pursues his dark path or whatever. But, you know, saying the name of her god is death is pretty dark shit for a little girl. So, I don't know. just thought that was important. Yeah, I guess um, Cyril Farrell didn't really... Or maybe he did teach her well. Like, like, what is she saying about this god of death? That, like... Well, if you think about the way that she chants those names anytime right. that she has a free moment, it's almost like her version of prayer. And what is she praying? She's praying for the death of these people who have caused pain in her life. So... I mean, and she's had a very traumatic life so far. So, so Arya's sort of worldview is that, uh, to, to quote someone else on the show, death is coming for everyone and everything. And she just Vala hopes, And she hopes it comes to some people sooner than others, essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, you know, she's going to continue trying to say no to the god of death. Uh, well, or who knows how long she'll succeed in the, in the hands of the Hound. That was a shocking moment when it was revealed to be the Hound. I will say that. I did I not see that coming at all. I, I mean, I knew like something terrible would happen to Arya because this whole thing has become... Arya has become like the Kim Bauer from season two of 24 of Game of Thrones. Like random crazy stuff just keeps happening to her uh, out and away from her family. It's kind of crazy. So speaking of crazy things happening, Joanna... <laughs> Theon Greyjoy. I can't believe we're going to end with this one. <laughs> Let's end with this. Let's end with this. Some people might have already turned it off. Yeah. So, I've had actually a bunch of people say that when they watch this scene, they could like hear us complaining about it. <laughs> Such well, is our beneficial impact on Game of Thrones watchers. Good. good. I, I hope that you guys felt a pang of guilt taking this one in. Uh. So, okay, Joanna Robinson, let loose. What's, what's the deal with the scene, Joanna? What is the deal? Well, here's what it did well. Here, here was my favorite part of the scene. Is Alfie Allen, right after the horn blows, the girls sort of dismount, his cringing, fearful face. Like, I just thought he did that trauma so well, where you're like, here's this moment of respite for Theon. I mean, none of us were like... Oh, Theon's fine now. These ladies are totally going to bone him and nothing bad's going to happen. I mean, I'm sure we all thought this is not going to end well. But, um, you know, Theon's trauma is the main point of these scenes to show this prolonged torture and trauma of his character. And it feels pointless. It's irritating. It's drawn out. The secret of his torturer is irritating and drawn out. But the thing they are doing well and the thing that Alfie Allen is doing really well is to show how injured psychologically Theon is by all of this. So, Well, it takes a lot of work to pretend like your pinky is getting sliced off. You know, it takes a lot of work to pretend like your foot is getting a hole drilled in it. You know what I mean? Like... Just acting it like – go back, watch those scenes again. No, actually don't. I take that back. But seriously, like when you see him kind of shaking violently on that X thing, you know what I mean? It, yes. You got to admire the the sort of um, – the effort that went into that. And he probably did like 10 takes each time. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it just 
you got to admire all the work that goes into appearing as though you're being brutally tortured. And right. I think it really came to fruition this episode when he kind of, there's this, he like, I, do I want to believe that these girls are going to have sex with me? I, I really want to, but I know that something horrible is going to happen. And, oh, it does happen. Right. So uh, I'm guessing like this whole thing of these uh, temptresses coming to seduce him uh, before his junk was cut off, like this is exactly word for word from the books, right, Joanna? No. <laughs> Wait, what? What? I'm astonished. But as we said, George, as Dave pointed out earlier today, George R. R. Martin wrote this, so basically it's canon now. Um, the the most shocking thing for book readers is not shocking is that it's implied that Theon was castrated, but never like blatantly stated, and so. Now we know, um, for well, sure. Well, I mean, Joanna, I, I would argue that this that was an implication. You don't think it's certain that he got his penis cut off in that scene? I, I mean, I, I like I personally believe that, but they clearly were ambiguous about it. Okay. Um, well, then. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Here's it what, was it I, was super gratuitous, though. I mean, everyone can admit that. You guys can like, I don't know. People get really pissed off when I say that the nudity is gratuitous, but it was super gratuitous. I mean, and the the writhing, it was very softcore porn situation. So um, that's fine. I hope that people enjoyed it. Um, my point was that the people who've been complaining about the Theon plotline being boring, maybe they wouldn't be complaining anymore because at least now there are naked girls. Um, whoever moved all their body hair, but um, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You know my feelings on the subject, so. Well, I will say, yeah, um, it's. I, I continue to be frustrated by the storyline. Can I say that? Like, like. Like sexually frustrated or yeah. incredibly no, but seriously, like we we have no reason to know. Okay, <laughs> by now some people may have figured out who is doing the bad stuff to Theon, but even then, like why obfuscate it? Do you know what I mean? Uh, again, maybe we're, we're obviously going to find I, out later why they're hiding that information. Um, go ahead, Jenna. What were you going to say? I feel like there's a point that okay. I can't talk about. Though. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, as for, as for the whole naked woman thing, was I the only person that, that thought that there is a, um, there's actually a functional reason for getting these naked women out there before, before cutting off his junk? Oh, like you gotta, you gotta, um, you, you gotta make sure get the blood flowing there. You gotta, I don't know. Like, I don't gotta, think I would want the blood flowing there if I were going to cut his junk off because that might kill him. Right, right. Well, it just is kind of, it's, it may be easier to extricate. And you don't think that coming after him with like a giant scary curved knife was like a complete boner shrinker? Like you think he still had a boner going when they took his pants off? You know, some people it takes a longer to go away than others. Okay. So. All right. Oh. Uh. No, you're probably you're probably right. You're probably right. I, <laughs> I thought it was like a dream sequence, honestly. Um I, yeah. Like it was it was going to be revealed to be a mirage. Yeah, that he was hallucinating or something. Whatever is going on, we can agree that the guy who is doing the torturing just has apparently like vast resources at his disposal to torture him, right? I know two willing naked shaved two, ladies, two willing naked chicks. Two, he could, he kind of rode off into the distance with. He had horses, right? Uh, he was able to kill a ton of dudes. Is just he's really drawing this out, man. He is really <laughs> drawing it out. 
but he's having fun. Yeah, he's, he's apparently having a blast. So We have fun. We have fun. So I'll say every week that passes where we don't know the, the full purpose of this Theon storyline is another week in which the payoff for the Theon storyline must be that much greater or else it's like, why were we put through this whole thing? Do you know what I mean? Once again, the only thing that I can say is that I feel like what they are conveying, the good that they're conveying is the Theon's trauma and that Alfie Allen is doing a really good job of showing that. So, All right. Uh, so that's our discussion of this week's episode of Game of Thrones. Overall thoughts on the episode, John Robinson? Oh, is that we're leaving it there? I think we're leaving it there. <laughs> okay. We're leaving it at trauma. Um, this is not a great episode. <laughs> You know, the thing is, I, I said the same thing, but talking it over, there is much more good about it than, than I recall, right? We got some yes. good John and Ygritte action. We got some good Tywin action. Uh, we got this great scene with Danny. There was uh, a bear. And, you know, the Brienne and Jamie storyline was great. So um, that's like four great moments uh, out, of, of, out of a 50-minute, you know, 55-minute hour of television. And Talisa Butt and Rob Butt. 55-minute uh, show of television. And so, uh, yeah, like, there's... Uh, how many shows do we watch that don't even have one great moment? You know what I mean? But that being said, yeah, this is a pretty mediocre episode. <laughs> you know, I just think that there are stronger episodes of Game of Thrones. And it's, it's, um, it's odd that George R. R. Martin wrote this one, I'll just say. Because he wrote Blackwater last year. And... You know, and then the first season, he also had like a more interesting episode. Um, I think it's called Pointy End or Sticking with a Pointy End, whatever it's called. Um, so this is like an odd, cho- I, you know, I don't know if he gets his choice of what episodes that he gets to write, but this is an odd choice to me out of the cool, you know, he could have done the sacking of Astapor or, you know, whatever else is coming this season, but he chose the bear episode, you know, or yeah. he was assigned the bear episode, you know, so that's. All right. Uh, well, we always like to read over emails, uh, and you can send us emails at acastofkings at gmail.com. Uh, we got probably like 100 emails this week, many of them containing spoilers, many of them correcting my incorrect identification of uh, Jamie Lannister's uh, nationality. Let's see. Uh, what do we want to talk about here? This email comes from Chris from Commerce, Texas. Uh, I thought this was a pretty interesting email, Joanna. Uh, I completely understand the problems with what appears to be needless brutality against a woman in the show, particularly the arrow through the breast. I think, though, that the arrow through the breast symbolizes two things simultaneously, Joffrey's indifference to sexuality and his inability to profit from nurturing care. The breast is both sex symbol and a symbol for breastfeeding, and Joffrey has violently defeated them both. In fact, I remember distinctly that the showrunners, in an odd change of habit, preserved Ra's dignity by covering the most scandalous parts of her breast, the nipple. They didn't have to do that, and I think it was to show that Joffrey's sin here is egregious and that women matter in both nurturing and sexuality, neither of which Joffrey is bound by. Also, the danger here, never before present, is Joffrey's personal agency in the death of a character, before he could command others to be killed, but had never done the deed himself. Apparently, that has changed. If Joffrey can kill at his leisure, without the assistance of others and with the authoritative power to do so, then he is now far more dangerous than he was before. And the number of arrows suggests that he has completely and totally found and enjoyed personal agency in killing, not just a brief introduction to it. 
He is as rabid a dog as before, but now he's off the leash and he's tasted fresh, uh, f- fresh blood and warm flesh. I'm more terrified of him now than I've ever been and worried at whom he might decide to aim his crossbow at next. Uh, any thoughts on this email? The, the only thing I'll point out is that uh, some people thought that it wasn't like the arrow through the breast was merely just meant to show an arrow through the heart and there wasn't some misogynistic breast arrowing going on there. John Robinson, your thoughts? Uh, I don't think it was misogynistic uh, necessarily. He did also – there's a, an arrow in her lady area as well. Um, so that was troubling. Um, yeah, someone wrote in like women just happen to have breasts and they're in the way of their heart. So that's all. I, I don't know. The whole Roz thing upset me. I thought it was really deeply unnecessarily gratuitously uh, gratuitous. Um, <laughs> other people didn't see it that way, and that's fine. But um, I, I just thought it was very, very upsetting. And the more I thought about it, actually, this last week, the more upset I was by it. So, um, you know, I, and I think it's giving the show too much credit. I think that's an interesting interpretation of the of the breast arrow thing. Um, but I think it's giving the show too much credit. Um, that's my take on it. So, right. Okay, this one comes in from Ryan from Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, he's saying, in season two, episode 10, when Jaqen Hagar is leaving Arya Stark, he tells her to remember a phrase when he says, uh, Jaqen is dead, say it again, Valar Morghulis. In season three, episode six, the same phrase, Valar Morghulis, is said by Melisandre to the Lord of the Light uh, priest that is with the Brotherhood, and it even cuts away to get Arya's reaction when she says it. I'm not sure what it means, but I noticed that you guys didn't talk about it in the podcast episode and would like to hear your thoughts on it. So, Valar Margulis means uh, all men must die, correct? Yeah. And then uh, Thoros responds with uh, Valadoraris, which means what again? All men must serve. Right. So, is that just like a standard greeting? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't. I mean, the scene is not in the book, so I don't really know what to tell you. But um, what I will say is, someone else mentioned that Jack and Hagar's theme, which I could not pick that out in a crowd, but apparently Jack and Hagar's musical theme played over when Melisandre was talking to Arya about the darkness she saw in Arya. So um, I think the, I thought that was pretty interesting. I didn't notice that, so that was pretty cool. But do you have any comments on the fact that? This is uh, Vala Doharis Vala Margulis interaction. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian from Las Cruces, New Mexico. We have nothing to say about that. <laughs> um, okay, this email comes in from Matt X. You've made several references now to the massive army of, uh, of White Walkers at the cliffhanger in Season 2. I feel certain that the intention of the show was not to suggest an all-out attack on the wall, but rather the crow base at the Fist of the First Men. So it's not odd that we haven't seen them since, because they succeeded in killing a few hundred crows, leaving the straggling survivors to flee south. The final shot at the end of Season 2 is not of the wall, but rather the hill fort of the First Men. Uh, do you agree with this assessment, Joanna? Absolutely. That's 100% accurate. Okay. So just just so we're clear uh, on that. You know, something that is kind of confusing me, though, is the, the geography of Game of Thrones. So um, the uh, wildlings have scaled the wall, and they're going south of the wall. Mance Raider is still north of the wall, correct? Yes. Right? And I don't think they're going south of the wall. They're traveling along the wall. I see. Okay. Okay. They're traveling along the wall and to get trying to, to Castle get Black. Castle Black. Which right. is lo- which is located on the wall, correct? Correct. Okay. 
so they're going to wait until Mansrader lights fire and then they're going to attack. Basically, um, they scaled the wall at a place where no one would notice them doing it. Right. And now they're traveling over to where the wall is guarded. That makes a lot of sense. Now, can you explain this Fist of the First Men business? That is, that is a, a place north of the wall, correct? It's north. Like, basically, you've got the wall, and then north of the wall, you have Craster's Keep, and then north of that, you have the Fist of the First Men, and then even north of that, you have where Mance Raider was set up camp. Thereabouts, you know, east or west, given east or west. So, you know, when, when um, the Commander Mormont and Sam and the rest of them are fleeing back from the battle at the Fist of the First Men, they, have, they stop at Craster's because they can't make it to the wall alive because you know they need nourishment and to recoup and stuff like that so they were a good way ways away from the wall when the white walkers attacked them so does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, totally but fist of the first men like is there any what are the uh, identifying geographic features of that kind of looks like stonehenge (laughs) i see it's you know it's got big tall stones around it and it's on on a hill crest gotcha and we, we saw this in a previous episode yeah uh, okay. I, we saw it last season. I see. I see. Okay. I totally... It's where, like, it's basically where, when Kornhafen and John start out in last season, they start from the Fist of the First Men. Like, that's where they were. I'm Got pretty it. sure. So, I could Got be it. wrong. Please, please, please do write in and tell me how wrong I am, if I'm wrong. All right. Uh, I think that's about it in terms of emails this week. Joanna, did you have anything else you wanted to point out, or are we good? No, we're good. Um, I want to thank everyone who's liked us over on – I know we're going to talk about this some more, but you know, we just started the Facebook page last week, and it's kind of fun to see everyone's interaction on there already. So thank you guys so much. Um, I think our community is pretty cool. So like between the hundreds of emails we get and the interactions on Facebook and the comments over in Slashfilm, uh, it's really fun to hear everyone's feedback. So. Yeah, very cool. Uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash a cast of kings. That's facebook.com slash a cast of kings uh and yeah there's already a few hundred people there so feel free to join in the community but no spoilers in the comments please or else you shall be removed stay tuned to hear uh joanna's book recommendation of the week in the meantime joanna robinson you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week uh you can find me every day on pajiba.com or you can follow me on twitter at quit your j rob find me at twitter.com slash dave chensky that's dave chen sky and dave chen.net joanna robinson you want to tell people a book that you'd recommend if they like game of thrones oh a series that i really like uh is called the gentleman bastard series by scott lynch and the first one i think is called the, the lies of Locke lamora so the gentleman bastard series by scott lynch is a really fun fantasy series to check out Awesome. Thanks for that, Joanna. And thank you guys for listening to A Cast of Kings, which is an unofficial podcast about Game of Thrones hosted by SlashFilm.com. We'll see you guys next week for the final three episodes of A Cast of Kings, plus one bonus episode. Thanks for listening.